um, this week, a scripture union camp uh, where I was the bus driver. I drove the bus from here up to Bendigo and down to Coolamatong, which is down near Bansdale, and then drove home. Quite a long bus ride, but I've got a story I want to share with you. It's part of what I'm speaking about this morning, which I think uh, will give me an opportunity to speak about how good God is to, to uh, the young people. Let's just pray. Father, if we open your word this morning, we, uh, we bring our hearts to you. We bring our minds to you. We bring our lives to you. We're your people. And if we're your people, then you're our God. And we're your servants. And we invite you to speak to us, guide us, and direct us, lead us to truth that we might live lives that are worthy of all that you've done for us because of your mercy and grace. We pray. Amen. I was uh, a few years ago uh, intrigued to find out the story of the post-it note. Do you know the history of the post-it note? You know that thing that we use and discard and don't even realise we've used it half the time? Did you know the post-it note was a failed invention? It came out of a failed invention. So what happened was there was a, there was a man by the name of Spencer Silver who worked with 3M and he tried to design a new notepad uh, which would be you know, well bound at the top. But what he found was the glue that he invented to, to put this thing together didn't seem to stick properly and then whenever he pulled it apart it never seemed to not stick and so he found himself with this invention that was basically rubbish. And for many years the, uh, the post-it note or the, 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 the idea of the post-it note just kind of sat in the failed 3M uh, you know, uh, portals uh, nobody remembered it, except that at, at a stage, a churchman by the name of Arthur, Arthur Fry, who worked with 3M, remembered that his mate, his workmate, had created this this gooey substance that um, that seemed to always stick but never stick properly, and so he got it out and started using it to keep his hymn book, uh, you know, like uh, numbers all in the right place. He found it invaluable because this thing, you could pull it off and you could stick it somewhere else and it would stick again and it was fantastic. And so he went back to 3M and suggested to them that there might be another use for this failed product. And uh, the 3M company were pretty sceptical about it. Um, but eventually in 1980, they launched the product we know as Post-it Notes and they are now in over 100 countries of the world and I don't know, I think it might be their most profitable line that they manufacture now, the 3M company, came out of failure. I, I love it when something really good comes out of something that was actually a failure. I'm trying to picture Mr Silver's face as he's sitting there with his, with his pad that he's trying to create for people to write notes on and he can't seem to get this thing to stay together as a pad should. And the, and the absolute feeling of like what a waste of time that has been producing uh, this thing. There's a saying that we have uh, that, you know, I grew up with. It says, on every cloud there's a silver lining, right? Uh, those of you who are relatively long in the tooth uh, will know that saying. Some of you who are young might have heard it somewhere. Uh, but they say it, don't they? On every cloud there's a silver lining, which is basically describing the presence of hope in adverse circumstances. 
Whenever something's not going the way you'd like it to go, when something's not going well, it's quite often the case that we think nothing's going well, but this little saying says that there's always hope in difficult circumstances. Optimism, that's what we're talking about. One of our uh, values as a church is you know, that uh, we, we like the idea of optimism. We think that as followers of Jesus, we have every reason to be optimistic. But optimism is not the absence of pessimism. Pessimism, that's of course, you know, nothing works, nothing's ever good, nothing. It's not the absence of pessimism. If that were the case, it would be called what we, what we call stoicism. But optimism is the confidence and expectation that something good is about to take place. That's what optimism is. Now in our reading today, which I'm going to work through in Philippians, um, we're going to have a taste of Paul's optimism. How in the midst of what would look like to most people a complete disaster, a complete how do you come back from this situation, he finds something to really be optimistic about. He, he just brims with optimism. It starts with this. He starts in, in verse 12. So, so last week I know that Trav introduced this, uh, this letter to the Philippians to you. I'm just going to pick it up from verse 12 and work our way through a few verses in this first chapter. But here, have a listen to this. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He says, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And there are two themes at play even in this simple statement. Here are the two themes. The first theme is, stuff happens to you. There's the stuff that happens to you He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me... So that's the first theme, stuff happens. But then the second theme is what you do about what happens to you. So, you know, you can't always kind of... You can't always control what happens to you, but you can take charge of what you do about it. And here he is, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. One of the things I've learned in life is this, is that you don't always have control over what happens to you. I know that. I think anybody who's lived long enough knows that. But you do have control over what you can do about it. So let's start with what has happened to Paul. So we know from this letter that he's, he's in jail. He's in prison. He talks about his chains. He, he talks about being in chains. We know he's in Rome and some say it was a house arrest but it definitely refers to chains. Therefore, he certainly is not free to come and go as he pleases. Now the question I might ask and and I invite you, when you read the scripture, to always ask questions of it. It's the best thing to do. I might ask this question, how did he get to be in prison? How did he get to be in this position? Because I don't think he's a bad person. He's not the sort of person you'd expect to find in a prison. 
Like, he's not there because he's done something wrong. As Trav prayed a bit earlier, you know, we pray for young people in Malmesbury for the very situations that cause them to be imprisoned. But Paul is here, he's in prison, and he's done nothing that would justify prison. But here's why he's in prison. In Acts 25, verses 9 to 12, we read these words. He is, he is mounting an offence before the governor of Judea, Festus. And here... He's addressing, um, he, he's, he's kind of in a conversation with Festus. It says, the scripture says in verse 9 to 12 of Acts 25, it's part of the history of Paul's journey. Festus says, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Now, there's a bit of political interplay going on in this little exchange. First of all, it says there, Festus wanting to please uh, the Jews, uh, wanted to do the Jews a favour. And before we talk about this, let me just say, we're not talking about a race of people. We're talking about a council who were colloquially known in their part of the world as the Jews. They were the Sanhedrin. The very same Sanhedrin, by the way, that cooked up charges against Jesus and had him brought before Pilate in Jerusalem and had Jesus put to death. You can understand then that when Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favour so that he could keep them quiet and they wouldn't disrupt his, his premiership in that place, he wants to take Paul up to Jerusalem and have him stand trial in Jerusalem and we all know what happened the last time that happened. It was a summary execution. And Paul... I don't know whether Paul's kind of like fearful of dying when he says, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to die. I don't refuse to die if I've done something that deserves the death penalty. But he does what he can do because he is a Roman citizen. He appeals to Caesar and it's his right to be tried in Rome before Caesar. Festus knows this. And so Festus says to him, after conferring with his counsel, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go because he has a right. Now, I'm looking at this, this is the bit of background here, and, I, and, and I've asked this question. Did Paul know beforehand what his appeal to Caesar would unleash? Did he have any idea what would happen when he went to Caesar? I'm not sure that he did. I'm not sure that he's, well, I, I, I wouldn't say he's omniscient. But I'm not sure that he understood what would happen because he made that appeal to Caesar. But here is what happened because he's in Rome appealing to Caesar. I suspect may have already had a court date, it would seem to me, because he says this, and I love it. He says, as a result, 
Let me go back to what I read earlier just so you can tap it into the context. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains... He says, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And he's excited about that. Well, he's in jail, but he knows he's done nothing wrong, but this is the very thing that he longs for and lives for, is to make Christ known. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, he says in one of his letters. Now, you know, truth is that most people struggle when they're imprisoned. A lot of people, when they go to prison, they can suffer depression and lose hope. I remember speaking to you about my friend Chen when he went to prison and, um, and I maintain to this day there were lots of questions about his, his, uh, his incarceration. But he lost 25 kilograms in a space of about three months with, with, with stress. It's stressful being in prison. We've just been listening to the news recently. In fact, there's been a lot of news lately about Australians who have been locked up in various countries. And, you know, uh, we, we celebrate the good news that a young couple are coming home. We're reunited with their family. But I'm, my mind goes to Jock Palfreyman in a Bulgarian prison. He's been there 12 years and he's, he's managed to get parole. And then there's, it seems to be there's a bit of a groundswell of people who want to keep him locked up. And it's stressful and I've been listening to some of the things he said from prison and you can hear in his voice and in his words the stress and the strain on him as he contemplates that he might not be free at all in that country. That's what prison tends to do to most people. It's actually designed, I think, as a process to kind of make you think twice before you do something wrong. The idea is, of course, that if you been to prison you wouldn't want to go back although we do have a history in our world of people who seem to go back to prison an awful lot which is probably worth asking some questions about wider issues which is what Trav was alluding to I think before but Paul in prison in chains seems buoyant about his imprisonment and that's because his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel, which is his whole heart's, you know, call and life. And this has happened even though there are people in Paul's world who are making trouble for him while he's in prison when he's least able to defend himself. Listen to this for a statement. It is true, he says as he flows on, he says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. He says, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me whilst I'm in chains. Gosh, it's not enough that he's in prison for, not, for doing nothing that justifies prison. It's not enough that he's got a death sentence hanging over his head. It's not enough that he's been deprived of his physical liberty 
But there are people who are heaping trouble on him whilst calling themselves friends. But listen to what he says then. He says, but what does it matter? I, I, I don't know how you get this kind of optimism. I Seriously, I'm a follower of Jesus, but this is inspiring. He says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this, I rejoice. Rejoice. See, there's what happens to you and there's what you choose to do about it. And Paul chooses to rejoice, which if you haven't figured it out, the word rejoice comes from the word joy. The root of rejoicing is joy. He is joyful. Some might say he sounds a bit overjoyed by the whole process, by the whole the way God has turned this disaster, what would look like a disaster, into something that's glorious. How can he rejoice in prison when he's been put there and done nothing wrong, not committed a crime? He's walking in the footsteps of Jesus who was without crime crucified. But he can rejoice because something else has happened to him. See, when he says, I want to tell you the things that have happened to me, there is something else that's happened to him that is far more potent and far more life-changing than being put behind bars and being clamped in chains that makes those bars and chains of no consequence to him. Doesn't matter to him. The scripture says that Jesus came to set the captives free. Bars and chains may restrict movement, but it's the invisible bars we live behind and the invisible chains that we have chained to us that imprison our spirits. And he knew the freedom, the freedom in his spirit. F.F. F. Bruce, one of my favourite commentators, uh, wrote, a, wrote a, a massive work on Paul's life and he called it Paul, the Apostle of the Free Spirit. I love it. Paul, the Apostle of the Free Spirit. And the scripture I say again says that Jesus came to set the captives free. It says he came to bind the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. And in John 8, 36, Jesus says these words, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Paul experienced this freedom the day he was struck down, blinded, and laid in the dust. Tyrone, can I have a little bit more light on the lectern? Thank you, just a little bit more. If you uh, know your story of Acts, you'll know the story of Paul's journey and Paul's personal kind of life direction. Uh, there was a time where Paul was filled with vile hatred and murderous thoughts against the followers of Jesus, going from house to house, arresting them and dragging them off to prison, both men and women. Um, 
actually willing to make orphans, really, of children in order to achieve this end. But on a day outside Samaria, Paul experienced Jesus. He was struck down, blinded and laid in the dust. And all his pride, all his vile hatred and all his murderous intent were, and the only word I could think about this was poulticed from his life. It was like the healing work of Jesus just drew this poison out of him. By the love of Jesus. And his dark heart was filled with the spirit of Jesus. That's freedom. And no bars and no chains can take that away from him. And he knew this freedom. He says this as he goes on, writing to this church. Yes, he says, he says, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. He's in the future he's saying, I will be rejoicing in the future. For I know, he says, that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me uh, will turn out for my deliverance. He says, listen to this for optimism. Listen to this for a, a perspective on what's happened to him. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will, be, I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in life or in death. I'm not even afraid of dying. For to me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in, this, in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for me now that I remain in the body for you. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Wow, what an incredible way. That's freedom. That's what comes when you're really free. Not a, do you notice there's not one thought in there about himself? Not one. He is completely set free from self-centeredness. I don't. I read that again. I can't find a word in there that's about his his circumstances. He's not asking them to pray for him in that place. He's praying for them. I can't. Can you get this? This is what freedom is. And there's no chains and there are no bars that you can be put behind that can take that away because there's what happens to you. And there's what you choose to do with it. Inspiring. We all have stuff that happens to us, right? I have stuff that happens to me. Every day stuff happens to me. Stuff happens to me that makes me happy. Well, it's easy to rejoice when stuff's happening to you that's happy. You know, we just we don't have to turn that tap on or turn the tap off. You just rejoice. And when stuff happens to you that you don't like... It's very easy to get grumpy about it, to get cranky about it, to get a sense of entitlement about it. Stuff happens to us. 
stuff that chains us, stuff that imprisons us. We're all living in some way or other, either released from the prison of our lives or struggling to figure out how to get out of the chains. All of us are sinners. I am a sinner. I am, I've got stuff in my life that is just a reflection of that I am not perfect. Some of us might be haunted by things we've done. Some of us have experienced suffering. Some of us have been victims of something. And, you know, all that kind of has a way of kind of building walls and bars and chaining us and locking us up. Maybe despite your best um, intentions or efforts, you've stuffed something up. You can't fix something. And life feels like a bit like a prison. You can't just get out of this thing. You, you feel chained. It's a common experience. It's not a rare experience. It's more common than not. I was going to tell you about this camp I went on over the week. I was driving the buses and uh, picked up a couple of lads from Harcourt who have been coming to our youth group. Lovely boys. One of the leaders at the camp said, what a pair of sweethearts. It's a beautiful word. They're sweethearts. Kind, generous, compassionate. Drove up to Bendigo and picked up some kids from a church. One of the church leaders up there has organised some kids to come. And I knew I was in trouble. or knew we were going to be in for a bit of interesting time when we took the bus from Bendigo down to Morong to pick up another bunch of kids. He got out of the bus and he says, do you mind if I have a smoke? And I said to him, I'd rather you didn't. Uh, he said, well, I'm going to have one anyway. And I knew then this is going to be an interesting few days. And he's a little guy, scruffy mop of hair. Um, could be, in another day, could be a sore adventures kid, I don't know. Anyway, ducked around the back of the bus, had a smoke, rolled his own, knew what he was doing, uh, came back and uh, climbed in the bus. And I, I said to him, I'll make a deal with you. I'll make a deal with you. If you can go without smokes for three days, I'll, I'll make it worth your while. Um, Fifteen minutes later, he's saying, can I get off the bus and need another smoke? Uh, he's 13 years of age. We got down to Melbourne, so I thought, okay, well, you know, I didn't teach him how to smoke. I'm just going to try and get us from A to B and from B to A and uh, intact. We got down to Melbourne and uh, we decided that these kids would break the trip, have a night in Melbourne... And we stopped in the SU office in Melbourne. They've got a church there which they work with. And we came in, we went out for dinner, walked around, walked a bit of tension off, got back, and then it started. And it started getting aggressive. And at 11 o'clock at night, I'm supposed to be getting into bed because I've got to drive the next day for quite some hours. And he wanted to go for a walk in Melbourne and determined he was going to go for a walk. And I said, nobody's going for a walk at this time of night, mate. We're all going to bed. Down you go. He went into the foyer and trashed the entire foyer of the uh, office, tipped the tables over, paperwork from here to kingdom come, furniture thrown over, um, and literally, completely and totally lost the plot. Kicked a hole in the plaster wall. Um, and at that stage, um, I knew we were in some strife here. Um, I went over to him to try and sort of like, 
lay it off. He took a swing at me. Missed, uh, as most kids have found they do. So I grabbed him, literally grabbed him. And I've done this three or four times, not often, but I grabbed him, wrapped his arms up and just lift... Uh, my, my strategy is lift them off the ground just that far so their tiptoes are on the ground. And they can't run, they can't kick, they can't hit, they just struggle until they are exhausted. And I just put him back down and I said, mate, look what you've done. Look, have a look. Quiet, shush, look, see the damage. I said, if, if I can't get you to stop, I will have to call the police. Please don't make me call the police. He stood down, went quietly in, sat in a chair, quiet as a mouse. And I'm surveying the damage. And I'm thinking, in the morning, my colleagues are going to come in and go, what on earth has happened here? Um, and he came out a couple of times, wanted to know whether the police were coming. I said, not yet. And then he came at the second time. He said, I'm feeling tired. I think I'll go to sleep. I said, good call. Um, and off he went. And we didn't hear again from him all night. In the morning he got up and he was quiet, you know, and he came and sat across from a couch from me. I put all the tables back, couldn't fix the hole in the wall. Uh, but um, all the cards and all the advertising materials all over the place. And he sat down and I said, mate, did you sleep all right? He said, <coughs> yeah, I didn't sleep well. And I said, um, how would you like to give me a hand? I said, so that when the folks come in this morning... They don't see this mess. Give me a hand to put these cars right again. We'll put them back where we found them. And he sat down and he was sorting out the cards. In the morning, staff from SU came through. Business manager came in. He said, how'd you go, Dave? And I went, we survived. Um, and I said, sorry about the hole in the wall. And he said, and he immediately knew. And he said, don't worry about that. That's fine. He says, we'll get Tom to come in and fix that. No problem at all. Uh, full of grace. I was thinking to myself, is this kid going to be going on camp with us or are we going to be sending him home? Five, seven years ago, eight years ago, it would have been a no question. It would have just been off you go home. But you see, there are so many children who are in that space now. And so my, my colleague came in and we chatted about it and I said, we'll take him on camp with us. He's still coming with us. We think Jesus can do a work in this kid's life. And so... We had a conversation about boundaries um, and off we went down to the camp. He swore like a trooper uh, for the first day or so. Um, I heard a conversation with his mum and I thought, wow, you know, that was confronting. But you know what I watched for three days? I watched him respond to love. And the, the workers, ordinary Christian people, many of them in their early 20s, just came alongside him, understood the chains and the bars this kid lives behind and he's stuck with. And they just ministered love to him. And for three days we watched him just soften and melt. And when we were coming home, we stopped in at Macca's on the way home. It was a long trip home, two hours from Mitcham to Melton. And we stopped in Macca's and he just sat by himself and he was quiet, quiet, quiet because he had experienced love and he knew he was going home to where he'd come from. And three days is not nearly long enough, I don't think, for a whole reversal to take place. I, I, I 
genuinely know. But you know, he's got a beautiful Christian pastor in Bendigo called Dave Fagg, who's a great mate of mine. And Dave Fagg asked me about him and we spoke about what happened and Dave said, I've got it, Dave. He's going to follow that family and that family are close to Dave. He's going to continue to work with that child. But I want to say to you that it's a common experience to be stuck in chains, to be behind bars of, of our own existence. And it happens at a younger and younger and younger age. And I'm praying for Cody. I said to him, as he got off the bus, this is the kid three days before I'd had to restrain and hold. And I said to him, mate, I just love what's happened for you for two or three days. And he was just, in his own kind of like um, limited words, and most of them not pleasant words when he's got them, uh, but he just looked and he gave the nod and, um, and I, I, I just loved. I just, you know, the love of Jesus can change lives. There's a kid sitting behind me on the bus. Um, Zach, God, he was a bit of a handful, not quite like Cody, but I'm, I'm listening in as I'm driving along and there's a 22-year-old team member and she's talking to him, he's just talking and he just blurts out, I want to be a better boy. I want to be a better boy. People are chained up. Our whole world is full of people living in chains. We are all people who have been living in chains. But Jesus, his love can release us from that life. There's what happens to you and there's what you choose to do about it. Which means your choices are you can either live behind the bars, you can remain in the chains of life, or you can take a step toward a new life. And if you want to take a step toward a new life, I could say those words you go, I don't know what to do. Here is what a step toward this new life means. It might mean confession. It might mean there's something you just need to get off your heart. Because when it's on your heart, it weighs down your life. It's like sitting in a cell. It may mean you need to just let this thing off your heart and share it with somebody that you trust. Naming it. Releasing it. That's a good start. And I'd say, I'm just going to give you the first step. And that's all I'm going to give you today is the first step. You need to do that. If you do that and you take that first step and you, you make a start, I promise you, because Jesus promises this, you will find forgiveness in confession. You will find grace and peace when it's off your heart. I know that will be the case because there's what happens to us and there's what we choose to do about it. And you can read from Paul's experience that no matter how tough, no matter how high those bars are, no matter how strong those chains are, when you're free with Jesus, you are free indeed. There's nothing like it. No freedom in the world can match it. I want to pray. I want to pray with you and for you. And I want to give an opportunity today. I think it's a right day for us to just give you an opportunity. If you, if you sense today that you've, you, you, if you can feel those bars, if you can feel those chains, I'm sure if we've talked about this today and you've been kind of living in that space, it will resonate in your heart. That's what stories tend to do. It raises for you these things and you can 
touch it almost, then I say today is the day when you might want to let that go. Today is the day where you might want to experience freedom. And I'm going to invite you to come for healing, if you would like to do that. If you need to come for forgiveness, if you need to come and pray for strength, to stay out of the jail, to stay out of that self-imposed prison, then we'll pray for that for you as well. But first I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite Nat and the musicians to come up and we'll have a time of prayer with you if you would like to pray. Lord Jesus, we just, we just know that the whole reason why you gave your life was that we would be set free, that we would no longer be slaves to sin, that we would no longer be chained to our past, that we would no longer be imprisoned by our lives, but that we would have this freedom, this peace that comes, that we would, we would experience what it means to be released, released from our own past, released from our lives. And we take you at your word, Jesus, when you say, if the Son sets you free, if I come to bring you freedom, you will experience freedom. We take you at your word because you are trustworthy. And so for all my friends here right now, I pray that if any here today, Lord Jesus, are feeling imprisoned and chained in their lives, that they might today experience your love, just as Paul did that day, when he experienced your spirit pouring into his life and pulsing out all the rubbish and junk that was chaining up his life. You gave him a new life and we hear and see what that meant. Such freedom, such rejoicing, no matter what. We want that. Lord Jesus, will you give that to us today if we come bravely and lay our lives before you? Will you do that for us today? I pray. Amen.